Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come now before you to hear you speak to us through your holy word. Grant us an eagerness to listen and a desire to know you more and an open heart to understand what you would say to us. For we know that man does not live on bread alone, or rather by every word that comes from your mouth, O Lord. May we not merely subsist, but even feast upon your word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you'll open your Bibles to our sermon text, we'll be looking this morning at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, through chapter 3, verse 2, page 1002 in the Pew Bibles this morning. So reading Hebrews 2, 14 through 3, 2. And as I read, I want you to keep your ears open. There's one command, one imperative in this section. See if you hear it. So here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Did you hear it? Did you hear that one command? Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Is that not the most important thing that we can do this time of year? It can be easily neglected in the busyness that comes with all our Christmas celebrations. But isn't this what should be most central at Christmas. Consider Jesus. Contemplate him. Meditate upon him. Think about him. Who he is and what he did. For at Christmas, we celebrate one of the most extraordinary events in all of history. God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. You could call this the great turning point the grand hinge of history. And we could spend this whole morning simply meditating on the wondrous truth of the incarnation and how this truth is brought out and reflecting on throughout the New Testament. For example, we saw this taught in our sermon text. If you were here last Sunday evening, 
We looked at Philippians chapter 2, how Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. We can wonder at how he stooped down, how the glorious God humbled himself to be born, and that in such poor circumstances. As we saw in our reading in Matthew 1, there was no guest room for him. And so he was laid in a manger, literally an animal feeding trough. There we also saw in Matthew 1 that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. What an unfathomable mystery that God would dwell with men. And the book of Hebrews, which is our main focus this morning, it opens with the divine glory of Christ. How it says he is the agent of creation, he is the exact, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. But then we see his humility here in chapter 2, verse 14, after speaking of how we humans possess flesh and blood, referring to our human nature, it says, he himself likewise, he partook of the same things. And then verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And so we marvel at this mystery, the divine glory condescending, stooping down so low to become in every way like you and like me, taking on frail, weak, human flesh. Like I said, we could spend the whole morning this whole sermon, contemplating the wonder of the fact, even the nature of the incarnation. And certainly this is a a rich topic to focus on in another sermon. However, that will not be the focus of our sermon this morning. It's true that God became man, and there is great mystery, there is great wonder here. But this morning, we'll focus not on the fact of the incarnation. This morning, I want to ask another crucial question. And that question is, why? Why did God become man? Because at Christmas, we celebrate not just the fact of the incarnation, not just the fact that Jesus, God's own son, became man, but we celebrate the reasons why. And there's not just one reason. We'll consider this morning several reasons We'll look at them under three headings. God became man first in order to become our great prophet. Second, in order to become our great high priest. And third, to become our victorious king. So let's consider Jesus as we look at why God became man. So first, this morning, God became man to become our great prophet, to reveal God to us. Jesus Christ took on flesh to reveal God as no one else could. The book of Hebrews actually begins with this theme of Christ as the great and final prophet. It opens, the opening verses, verse 1 and 2, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also... He created the world. Yes, God revealed many truths about himself 
through the prophets, all throughout the Old Testament, but we get to know him in a whole, on a whole different level when God himself comes down in Jesus Christ. In fact, all the prophets were looking forward to, pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah, the Son of God. In contrasting the, the former with the latter, as Hebrews 1 does here, we should also see that the prophets, they spoke with authority. They spoke the truth. They spoke the word of God. But Jesus comes as God himself. He not only speaks the word of God, but as we see in John chapter 1, he is the word of God. He is the word of God who takes on flesh. And so everything that he does demonstrates to us who God is, what God himself is like. And so John writes about the incarnate Christ. No one has ever seen God, but now the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known, John 1.18. In Christ, the invisible God becomes visible to us, and we behold his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can say, as he said to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, John 14.9. For he is, as I quoted earlier, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1.3. Jesus Christ is God become man to be our great prophet, to reveal God to us. B.B. Warfield reflects on how the light of Christ relates to what came before in the Old Testament. He writes, the Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished, but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. And so with the coming of Christ, who is the light of the world, we have this richer, brighter, more glorious vision of who God is revealed to us in the New Testament. It's not that there's a different God in the New Testament as some people so erroneously believe. We get such a richer, fuller understanding of God with the coming of our great prophet, Jesus Christ. And so consider Jesus. He is God become man to be our great prophet to reveal God to us. Second, God became man to be our great high priest. Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. As our great high priest, Jesus serves as the mediator between God and man, representing God to us and representing us to God. Now there were priests in the Old Testament who fulfilled this role very imperfectly. But who could better serve the function of the mediator between God and man than one who is both truly God and truly man? The book of Hebrews is unique in the New Testament for teaching with great clarity how Christ fulfills this priestly role. And we can only scratch the surface of all that Hebrews brings out and fully fleshes us out this morning. There are many ways that Christ serves us as our great high priest. The greatest of all is when he sacrificed himself as the perfect offering for sin. A sin is the greatest problem that each and every one of us faces. 
Now, most, pe- most people don't recognize this. They don't recognize how serious a problem sin is. Not only do we sin often, not only do we sin repeatedly, racking up ever more sin debt before God, but our sin is against the supreme majesty of God himself. Even the smallest sins are against his perfect justice, his perfect holiness. And because God is the thrice holy, the holy, holy, holy God, he cannot abide even the least sin, even the least impurity in his holy presence. And so scripture makes clear, the soul that sins must die. The penalty for sin is death. And that is referring to an infinite eternal judgment under the wrath of God in hell. As finite creatures sinning against the infinite majesty of God, we can never repay, we can never balance the books, we can never make satisfaction. Now all man-made religions, they teach you just need to work a little harder. You just need to do more good deeds than bad. Just balance out the scales. Now that's man-made religion and even this What does it do? It puts you on an endless treadmill. You never know if you've done enough, if you've made it. But even this, it's it's made up. It doesn't work. When you think about it, it doesn't make any sense because this doesn't even work in our human courts. A murderer doesn't get off for his crime because he did lots of good deeds as well. He doesn't present the evidence saying, well, yeah, I murdered that person, but I also gave lots of food to the hungry. I gave lots to charity. And so neither will your good deeds cancel out your sins when you stand before the judge of all the earth. God is just. He is gracious, but he is just, and he cannot merely forgive. There must be satisfaction. Someone must pay the penalty for your sins. But God, out of love for his people... He desired to pay that penalty for his people. There's just one problem. God cannot die. God, who is life itself, immutable, unchangeable, impassable, he cannot die. But God found a way. Calvin writes here, his infinite love toward us appears But it's overflowing appears in this, that he put on our nature, that he might thus make himself capable of dying. For as God, he could not undergo death. Christ was born in order that he might die, in order that as our great high priest, he might offer himself as a sinless substitute to pay the penalty of sin in our place as it says in verse 17, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so going further on in Hebrews, Hebrews 9 says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. As our great high priest, he offers up his own life. He pays our guilt with his outpoured blood. He had to be a man so that he could die. But as the divine man, 
His life, His blood is of such supreme value that as Hebrews 10.14 says, by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. God became a man to make satisfaction for your sins if you are trusting in Him. And what do we respond but to say, what love is this? What sacrifice that God himself would stoop down and not only take on flesh, but die and die in such a humiliating way as on a cross. And such is the love of Christ. This is his work as a priest, but that's not the end of his priestly work. Because as a man, he also suffered temptation in every way. And so he is perfectly able to help us. He is also able to intercede for us. That's what 2.16 says. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. In verse 18, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And when you consider that God is perfect in his knowledge. He's all-knowing. He's perfect in his understanding, perfect in his wisdom. As God, he already knew everything necessary to help us. And so strictly speaking, you could say Christ, he didn't need to go through suffering and temptation in order to understand our struggles and help us. As God, he already knows all things. And yet, For our sake, he humbled himself. He personally experienced suffering and temptation as a man to show us, to assure us that he knows your suffering. He's been through it all. What a comfort to know that he knows temptation. He knows suffering, not just with a head knowledge, not even with just with divine knowledge, but with a personal, experiential, human knowledge. He knows it because he has been there. He has gone through it. He has felt it deeply. It's just like a person with a unique form of suffering. Think of someone who has lost a child. That person is better able to be comforted by someone who has gone through the same loss because that person truly knows what the other is going through. And so it is with Christ. He has experienced temptation. And as it says, he has suffered when he was tempted. And when you think about it, this is to a far greater degree than anyone else, for he never gave in. He never sinned. When you and I and anyone else suffers under temptation, we do so only to the degree and up to the point when even the strongest of us eventually gives in. And so we never experience temptation to its fullest extent, the full force of temptation. But Christ knows temptation to its fullest because he never surrendered to it. B.F. Westcott writes of Christ, sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity, he who, he who falls yields before the last strain. 
Since Christ never yielded to temptation, he knows its power better than anyone. And that means he can sympathize with you in your struggles, whatever you're going through. He understands. And you can come to him in any trial, in any temptation, in any suffering. As it goes on in Hebrews chapter 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so as our high priest, Jesus is ready and willing to help us. You will receive mercy and you will find grace. And so go to him. But that's not all. It's not all Christ does as our high priest. For not only is he eagerly waiting to respond to your prayers, to be a help to you, but as we learn in Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Even before you pray, even before you go to him for help, he is already praying for you. And that prayer is with perfect knowledge, with perfect understanding. He is interceding for you, his people, and interceding for what is best for you. As your priest, he not only carries your prayers to the Father on your behalf, but, and this is of far greater value, God himself, Jesus Christ, your Savior, he is also praying for you. He is helping you even before you ask him for help. When you combine all these aspects of Christ's priestly work, his sacrifice, his help in temptation and suffering, his constant intercession, you come to the glorious conclusion that Paul reaches in Romans chapter 8. It's another, another uh, chapter that also covers his priestly work. And he writes, Therefore, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Oh, what security we have in Christ's finished work. Oh, what comfort we draw from his help and his intercession. Because he is our great high priest, we have peace with God, and we rely on his constant help and intercession. And so I say, consider Jesus. He is God become man, not only to be our great prophet, but also our great high priest, that he might present himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins and then to ever live to make intercession for us. And then third, this morning, Christ became man become our victorious king. Christ was born in Bethlehem. And why in Bethlehem? Because that was the city of David. He was of the royal line of David. He was the long-awaited Messiah born to be king of the Jews. 
The wise men saw his star when it rose. They came from distant lands to worship him who was born a king. When the jealous King Herod heard the news, he tried to kill the infant Jesus to preserve his throne. The Lord, the newborn king, was delivered from his hands. But Jesus was not just born a king. When he began his ministry, he proclaimed, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now it was time to usher in his kingdom. But what does this kingdom look like? In ancient times, the king was not like a modern-day commander-in-chief who sat back behind the lines and would order the troops from a safe distance, perhaps even from an office in Washington. No, rather he would be on the front lines, often the first one leading his troops into battle. He would fight their enemies. He would conquer their foes. Now, many of Christ's followers, they expected him to be a political deliverer, to fight Israel's enemies to deliver them from their oppression under the Roman Empire. Jesus did come to be a deliverer, but he foiled these expectations of political deliverance. And so when Jesus stood before the governor Pilate and Pilate asked him, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responded saying, my kingdom is not of this world. And yet Jesus still did come to be a champion, to lead in battle, to deliver us from our greatest enemies. It's just that Jesus' followers were mistaken when they thought their greatest enemies were their political oppressors. Rather, Jesus came to deliver us from our greatest spiritual enemies to triumph over to sin, over death, and over the devil himself. He doesn't just lead us into battle But he himself, he goes and he fights the battle for us. He alone wins the victory. And all believers in him gain the spoils. And where does he go to fight that battle? Where does he go to win that victory? He does it on the cross. That's where he wins the victory over sin, over death, over the devil. And he does it to set his people free. That's what's brought out in verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's on the cross as Jesus Christ actually partakes of death, what appears like his defeat, that Christ wins his greatest victory where he goes on to conquer sin and death and the devil. But now we must ask, how exactly does he do this? We already saw earlier how he overcomes sin, because there on the cross he offers up that high priestly sacrifice. He offers up his innocent blood as a ransom. He pays for our guilt in our place so that you might be forgiven. And so he conquers sin. But scripture also teaches that by his death, he conquers death itself. Here we have to look at Romans chapter 5, which explores this in depth, and it compares the first man, Adam, to Jesus, who is the second and last Adam. He who undoes the failure of that first Adam. Once Adam sinned and he fell, all mankind lived under that penalty of sin, which is death. And so Romans 5 says that death reigned over all mankind 
from Adam forward. But as Romans 5 points out, Adam's sin and failure pointed forward to the second and greater Adam who was to come. Where Adam sinned leading to death, Christ obeyed in perfect righteousness leading to life. Romans 5, 17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. And of course, you know, Christ didn't just die on the cross, but three days later, he rose again. And so we read in Romans 6, 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And so through his death and resurrection, Christ, he conquers sin and death once and for all. And because we are united to him through faith, we share in that victory. And so we can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ gives the great promise of eternal life as he said to his good friend Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? John 11, 25 and 26. Having conquered sin, having conquered death, we see Hebrews takes it one step further. He has therefore destroyed the power of the devil, that great serpent, just as it was prophesied all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, 15. On the cross, the serpent struck his heel, but Christ crushed the serpent's head. Colossians 2 puts this together with his victory over sin, over and sin, victory over sin and over the fallen angels in this way. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so while the devil still lives, he no longer holds the power to do us any ultimate harm. And then the author of Hebrews gives us a very practical application of Christ's victory. This practical application for us. He sets us free from slavery to the fear of death. Now, for so many people, this inevitability of death, it casts a dark shadow over all of life. You can try to hide from death as so many do today, or they just try to hide death off in a dark corner. Or you can try to do everything possible, every medical intervention to prolong life. But death and the fear of it dominate so many people's lives. And the truth is, if you aren't reconciled to God, if you aren't trusting in Christ, that fear of death is warranted. But not for the believer, for we have been delivered from this fear in Christ. Matthew Henry, reflecting on this passage, writes, Christ became man and died to deliver from those perplexities of soul by letting, the, letting them know that death is not only a conquered enemy, but a reconciled friend not sent to hurt the soul 
or separated from the love of God, but to put an end to all their grievances and complaints and to give them a passage to eternal life and blessedness. So that to them, death is not now in the hand of Satan, but in the hand of Christ. Not Satan's servant, but Christ's servant. Has not hell following it, but heaven to all who are in Christ. And so for the Christian, death is now a passage into the very presence of Christ our Savior. As Christ promised to the thief who is dying at his side, today you will be with me in paradise. And so I say, this Christmas, consider Jesus. He is God become man to be your victorious king, to conquer sin and death and the devil, so that you can say with Paul, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8. So, as you celebrate Christmas this year, take time to consider Jesus. Meditate on the miracle of the incarnation, that God would become man. But even more, marvel at the reasons that he did this. Jesus Christ, our glorious God, became man in order to become our great prophet, to reveal God to us as no one else could. God became man to be our great high priest, to present himself as the perfect sacrifice to deliver you from sin, to be the one who understands you, who helps you in all your trials and temptations and suffering. And not only this, but the one who is always interceding for you. And finally, Christ is God become man to be your victorious king, to conquer sin and death and the devil. And in him, you share in his triumph. Francis Turretin writes, our mediator ought to be God, ought to be the God-man to accomplish these things. Man to suffer, God to overcome. Man to receive the punishment we deserved, God to endure it and drink it to the dregs. Man to acquire salvation for us by dying, God to apply it to us by overcoming. Man to become ours by the assumption of flesh, God to make us like himself by the bestowal of the Spirit. This neither a mere man nor God alone could do. For neither could God alone be subject to death, nor could man alone conquer it. Man alone could die for man. God alone could vanquish death. Both natures, therefore, should be associated, that in both conjoined, both the highest weakness of humanity might exert itself for suffering, and the highest power and majesty of the divinity might exert itself for the victory. And so, as you can contemplate the incarnation of Jesus Christ, why he came this Christmas, give all the glory to God alone.
Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, how we praise you as we consider this morning our Savior, Jesus Christ. What a glorious, what a wondrous truth that your Son, the eternal God, became man, became like us in every way. May we grow in our understanding of who he is and all that he has done for us so that we might love you more, so we might trust more in our Savior, that we might continually grow in awe and wonder at the greatness of your grace toward us. Father, you, can, you deserve continuous praise, never-ending thanksgiving. May that be what our hearts delight to give back to you. And may our lives be lived in continuous gratitude and service to the one who loved us and gave his life for us. May all glory go to the risen Lamb of God, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen.